She's Got Issues uses compelling personal stories to illustrate how politics and policy impact the lives of ordinary people, especially women. On She's Got Issues, we dive deep into the challenges people face on a personal level. Real people, real life, relatable stories. Welcome back to She's Got Issues. I'm your host, Jody Srutek, and I'm here with a guest, uh, Mary Ann Bromley. And today we are going to talk about redistricting in South Carolina, about gerrymandering, if you've ever heard that term before. So very interesting topic, and I'm excited to have a guest with me to go over this. Um, Mary Ann, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Um, thanks for having me, Jody. Uh, my name is Mary Ann Bromley, and I have um, been living in South Carolina since 2009. So it was right before um, the last redistricting cycle. Um, and I have been um, the director of state issues and advocacy for the for the Hilton Head Bluffton area League of Women Voters for the past four years. Um, I have since stepped down from that position and am focusing uh, 100% of my league time now on redistricting. I also serve on a statewide um, League of Women Voters redistricting work group. And so we have been getting more and more involved with um, overall in the state um, as well as mapping of districts, which is kind of, from my point of view anyway, fun. Some people may not see it that way, but um, I'm enjoying it. Sure. Yeah. Well, I know I am a little bit of a, of a data nerd, so I do enjoy, you, you know, the maps and kind of looking at those and drilling into those. So we'll, we'll talk about that, but it sounds like you're the lady to talk to when it comes to, or one of uh, the ladies to talk to when it comes to this issue here in South Carolina. So I'm so glad uh, you're taking the time with us. So one of the things that we do on She's Got Issues is we tell stories. We talk about ourselves and how we became interested in the issues that come up on the show. So tell us your story. Okay, I've um, sort of got a little bit of a long um, story. I started off my professional career in 1970 as a caseworker with the Department of Social Services in Westchester County. And this really gave me my first taste of um, the impact of policies, social policies, I should say, on um, more disenfranchised groups. Uh, you're too young to remember, and maybe a lot of your audience is too well to remember. But um, this was the time of the Vietnam War. Um, and um, this was also the time of urban renewal in many cities. And what urban renewal did basically was it dis displaced the urban poor from um, cities that wanted to become more gentrified. And um, I was working in White Plains, New York, where now when you go back to White Plains, you wouldn't even know that there were any poor uh, or minorities for the most part. Uh, living in the city. It's become a big uh, corporate headquarters hub and um, they got there by basically moving people away. Similarly to uh, what's going on right now, maybe on a bigger scale, but similar to the 278 expansion and the impact on the Gullah Geechee uh, community. Uh, this was also a time when the um, African-American population 
the um, uh, poorer neighborhoods uh, were dealing with a lot of heroin addiction. This is also the time when we didn't really have much in terms of social policy to deal with these kinds of social problems. It didn't actually be viewed as a problem per se until the middle and upper middle classes, particularly the young people in those classes started getting involved with drugs. Then it became a social issue. Another thing that was going on then was resettlement of Cuban refugees and we were very involved with that. This was a very poorly administered program. Um, it created many divisions between low-income African-Americans, Puerto Ricans, and other limited American families uh, who saw federal money going to help the Cuban refugees and nothing was being done to help um, American citizens who were already, you know, um, having difficulties at that time. This and some other experiences made me realize that being a caseworker was not enough. It's like putting a Band-Aid on things. And while it's very good to help individuals, it's not going to solve systemic problems that create hardships for people. And I'm slowly working my way to the fact that redistricting is a very big systemic problem. You know, you want- it's interesting to hear you talk about that because in our first episode... I interviewed Melissa Watson Ward, who is currently serving as the executive director of Emerge South Carolina. She as, was a social worker like you, and she um, that was how she became involved in politics as well, because she realized that, you know, working on the individual level was very important, but tackling this systemic problems... Mm-hmm. Uh, was really, you know, where solutions were, right? Sure. So, so yeah, it's just interesting to hear you kind of have a similar experience that that was sort of the catalyst to get you involved in in working in political advocacy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, knowing that this was um, an, an area that I wanted to move into, I went back, got my master's degree in social work, uh, landed a position for a while as what was called a program policy specialist. Soon realized that I was still working in the county, that county government um, was not the solution to all these, these major social problems. So I went back to school again, uh, began my doctoral studies with a, re- with a policy and research conference concentration. And in 1982... I was asked to go to Thailand and take a group of MSW students to work in the Southeast Asian refugee camps there. Well, I could spend the whole rest of the podcast and more talking about that experience. Um, But really, um, when I returned to New York City and and to finish my doctoral studies, I can tell you that I was a totally changed person. Um, After seeing firsthand the international and political aspects of failed policy, Um, and the human suffering and tragedy that it created. Um, I went ahead, I finished my PhD, and my husband and I relocated to Rhode Island, um, which was, um, at that time, was, um, had a fairly large number of Southeast Asian refugees from Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, um, and also the Hmong population, which is um, a subgroup of um, Laotians. Mm -hmm. Um, and I took a teaching position 
um, in a graduate school of social work. Uh, there, two of the favorite courses I taught were courses on social policy analysis, engaging um, in um, advocacy and social change, and also in doing community organized organizing. And the students were required to get involved in legislative change through in-class policy debates, and they also were required to testify at the state house on a social policy where there was a companion uh, bill, let's say, that that they would choose. And this was a very easy thing to do in, in Rhode Island for a number of reasons. One is is that the, the, the school was 15 minutes away from the state house. So <laughs> you could just drop everything and run over there, um, literally. And of course, the other is, is that Rhode Island is a pretty progressive state, similar to Massachusetts in many ways, although much smaller. And so the um, the state legislators actually welcomed the students and had a great deal of respect for the testimony that they were giving. A little bit different than uh, here in in South Carolina. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that is a that is a difference yeah, between the two yeah, states. Sure. So um, in 2009, my husband and I retired to the Hilton Head Bluffton area. And it took a while to, for both of us to adapt to the political culture shock, even though we, we knew um, what we were getting ourselves into. We didn't realize it until we actually got here. And I began volunteering with the League of Women Voters of the Hilton Head Bluffton area, um, as I said earlier, as the Director of State Issues and Advocacy. The major focus for four years was on trying to um, get legislation passed to establish an independent redistricting commission which would make for much fairer um, maps, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute. Now we're pushing and testifying for um, what the league refers to as people-powered fair maps with much more citizen participation and uh, more competitive districts. So that would take me to the topic of redistricting. Yeah, sure. Well, <laughs> I mean, I think all of that background is, is valuable because I know... And we've talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but for a lot of people, these topics are overwhelming. And if you don't understand it and haven't been following it, to try to get involved, it, it is overwhelming. You know, you don't really know who the players are. You don't understand the context, a lot of the decisions or what came before. And so it's really hard to get involved. So I always think it's valuable to listen to people and sort of their personal story of how they came into something it makes it approachable, I guess, is mm -hmm. a good way to put it, is that it's like, okay, so we find commonalities in our stories, and then we realize that this person is doing something I can too. So when we talk about redistricting for people, just for our listeners, if you're not familiar with this, every 10 years in South Carolina, this happens in other states too, we do ours differently. Some states have an independent commission that mm -hmm. does it. Our state does not. Our, our uh, district lines are drawn by our legislators who are elected. We draw congressional district lines. We draw House and Senate district lines. Um, and basically look at a map of South Carolina, and that's what we meant when we talk about maps, and draw the lines of where the districts will be. So, um, and they change. They change based on population, on the census, on communities of interest. Because as you know, if you've lived in South Carolina, at least for the last 10 years, I know for myself, I moved here in 2003, we have had 
just a massive population boom, specifically here in Beaufort County, but also in Greenville and in the Charleston mm-hmm. area as well. So a lot of people moving here and, you know, you add house districts, you get more representation, the more people you have. And as populations shift from one area of the state to the other, those lines will move as well. So the League of Women Voters is a nonpartisan organization. It's one of the oldest nonpartisan organizations. Uh, political organizations in the country, if I'm not mistaken. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about the League? Sure. And um, as you probably know, last year we celebrated our 100th anniversary, and it was also the um, 100th anniversary of um, the suffragette movement. And the League of Women and Voters um, was an outgrowth of the the suffragette, suffragette movement. Um, so that gives you some sense of the, um, the depth uh, of, the, of the league. In addition to saying, uh, when we talk about redistricting, that we want people-powered people fair maps, our overall goal is um, about good government. And in this state in particular, there's other national groups that have more statewide uh, representation. We don't have that so much in South Carolina. So that the League of Women Voters um, has become the voice when it comes to issues involving good government. And Lynn Teague, who's our who's the state vice president for um, issues in action, is the per- the person who um, is there to represent us at the state house. And when I say she is there, I think she is there from the time the meetings start to the time they end, putting forth the league position on a number of different issues. The league also gets involved in other issues, such as women's right to choose, environmental issues. But there, it's usually another, I shouldn't say usually, it is always another organization that's taking the lead on that. And where the league comes in with, with, with our two cents, if you will, is in connecting the problem to why it matters in terms of good government. So if I can use an example, the, um, the um, plastic bag ban that began in um, uh, Hilton Head, most organizations were approaching it legitimately from the standpoint of environmental. The League of Women Voters was testifying and, took, and, and making the position that the state has no right to basically interfere with what is a local issue, that um, there needs to be that respect. And it's kind of interesting because we've seen other times when the state is um, complaining about the federal government putting their two cents into what should be a state issue, but then when it comes to the state and dealing with the, the local levels of government, it always doesn't always hold true. So, well, and that's pertinent now because we have an issue that's a very hot topic where the state is interfering in local control with our school districts by not allowing local control over schools and implementing mask mandates during <laughs> COVID. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, it's just another example of how one policy can lead to another to another and I think that's one of the reasons why I have so much respect for the League of Women Voters is because it's 
as a, as a nonpartisan organization, it's very easy to make some things political, but as a nonpartisan organization, it's more about the policy and the process. Um, and two, one of the things that the league does very, very well is, is voter education, which I have always really appreciated. Um, if I'm trying to learn about an issue that I don't really know that much about, I like to go to the League of Women Voters because often you will have um, a lot of research done on a specific topic. So I think that that's one of the main things. And that's kind of what you have done with the redistricting process, right? That was your role mm-hmm. for some mm-hmm. time. If I could just interject for a minute, um, in addition to voter education, the League was is primarily known for voter registration, although... Um, um, it's broadened out to a, a large number of organizations which are now involved in voter registration and also voter rights. And while those are very important issues, and they're issues that people can really understand, they understand when they've waited in line for two hours and, and haven't yet gotten to the voting booth. But really, um, it's redistricting that if we don't do something about that and the gerrymandering, we aren't going to have any voting rights. Um, that the bottom line is that the way the, the lines are drawn uh, by the state legislators in terms of our voting areas, the idea of one person, one vote doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And I will, I'll try to um, illustrate some of that um, as we go on. Yeah, I think that's you've kind of segued beautifully into the next section, because that's kind of what I wanted to get into, is that I want to help people understand how the districting process where we have partisan legislators determining where their voters are influences Mm -hmm. elections, influences voting rights, all of those things that you were talking about. So go ahead. Mm -hmm. Why don't you, I know you, you're, you know, you're so experienced and and well-versed on this topic. So I think you can explain it better than I can for sure. Well, let me just segue on the comment you just made. There was an article um, in an online newsletter that, you're probably familiar with State House Report. Yes. Uh, and it's it's free. I mean, they ask for contributions, but it's free. And anybody who's interested in, in this really should should subscribe. Anyway, this past week, Andy Barak, I think I'm saying his name correctly, who's the editor and publisher of the newsletter, he had a, a picture on the front part of the newsletter of a hen house. And the caption read... The legislators drawing voting district maps is like asking a fox to guard the hen house. Of course, they're going to put their own interests above the interests of the voters. This is a big part of the problem and why we were trying so hard, along with other organizations, to get an independent redistricting commission. But that's water under the bridge now, and we have to deal with what we've got which is those legislators drawing the district lines. And I want to point out, you mentioned um, that they draw their own lines as well. Well, the Senate draws their own lines, the House draws their own lines, although ultimately they have to vote on each other's. And they also probably separately, but come together to do the congressional lines. But you mentioned about the, the, um, the school districts and they have a say even in the school board districts because I had been under the impression that it was um, county council and the school board that were very involved in drawing the school board lines. That is not the case. It's the Buford County legislative delegation that draws the maps for, this, for the school board, which is why we see some school board maps which are very different from the county council maps. You know, it would seem to be logical that the two would be the same, but 
they're not necessarily so. So there is a there are representatives of both the Senate and the House on this legislative delegation, and so they can even put their stamp on the um, the school board districts. Sure, and I'll jump in there as someone who's done a lot of public education advocacy, and I ran for county council here in Beaufort County. School board, remember. yeah, school board is uniquely important uh, in that that is often where people who who uh, serve, you know, in an elected office. That's usually where they get their start. So a school board, a town council, or a county council is often where people start. And school board is particularly attractive to people because it's often nonpartisan. So mm-hmm. you don't have to declare a political affiliation. That's right. And so a lot of people, they're drawn to school board because of that. And then mm-hmm. they use that from there to go on to county council or to a state house position or something a little bit higher up. And mm-hmm. we see within, and this is both parties, uh, where they will sort of groom candidates uh, and recruit for school board and then on up. So having control over those races and and where the lines are, because don't forget, if you have an appealing candidate somewhere that you want to run, but they're not in the correct district, Mm -hmm. this is uh, an opportunity, right, to maybe draw the line around one neighborhood or split it across the street to keep someone out is another another thing. So anyway, Mm -hmm. go ahead, continue, please. Well, and then the other thing is that um, we have some districts where um, a candidate might, uh, a, a legislator might have moved, and so the line then gets drawn to make sure his house or her house is included in that district. Um, and it's also a way of drawing the lines in such a way that you um, literally pick your voters instead of the voters picking their legislators. And you pick them on the basis of whether or not they agree with you. Uh, And so on issues of importance to you. And so we end up with um, very partisan um, districts. Yeah. And because South Carolina is a predominantly red state, um, the districts are drawn um, by both Democrats and Republicans at the state house, but the Republican representation is much higher than the Democratic representation, and therefore is more likely to get more maps. Um, in the South Carolina Senate, there are seven out of the forty-six districts that are competitive. That's 15% of the districts. And when you say competitive, explain to folks what that means. The criteria that the League of Women Voters used in in a recent piece that they did in terms of map, actually uh, looking at the maps that were drawn um, after the last census, we used the figure of 10%, meaning that a district was considered non-competitive. I think it's easier to understand this way. If there was no way within a margin of 10% that the opponent could win, whether it was against an incumbent or whether it was against candidate of another party. Sure. So when we're, when, when we're talking about that, what that looks like is you have the district lines, let's say, for a, a South Carolina House 
representative seat. Whoever, the, the, they draw the lines in such a way that the people that live within those boundaries have a history of voting straight tickets. That's right. Um, and it goes both ways. It's not just Republican. It is also there are That's some right. that are that are hyper partisan for Democrats. But that's right. And ma- we usually call that incumbent protection. Sure. The majority uh, are are Republicans in the state of South Carolina. And uh, so even if there were a challenger to that seat, the likelihood of them winning is next to nothing. Less than 10 percent. Yeah. Using the using the yardstick that the that the league used to come up with a figure that only fifteen percent of the Senate districts are competitive. And here's one of the reasons why that piques my interest as someone who ran for office and and as a woman and somebody who's who's working hard to get women elected mm-hmm. is that it keeps people from running because. One of the things, especially fundraising, right? If you're a candidate and you need to raise money to run for office, we all know you need money to run. People will not donate to you if they don't consider you to be a viable candidate. And if you are running in a district that is so gerrymandered, as the term is, or so Mm -hmm. hyper-partisan that you just can't win because your voters, your potential voters are literally drawn out of your district. And I have seen even my little tiny race here in county council, if you look, it's literally one side of the street sometimes. Right. You'd have a specific street and on the even number side of the street, that precinct will vote straight ticket Republican 65% of the time. And on the other side of the street, that district will vote, you know, Democratic let's say, you know, 54% of the time. Mm-hmm. And and they that's how detailed these maps can be. And it keeps, it's not competitive. It means that you have more extreme candidates because they know that when folks go into the voting booth, they'll just pick the button that they want. Um, it means that your representatives don't necessarily have to work that hard for you sometimes, right? Because they know they're going to win anyway. And it keeps people from running, which I think is one of the biggest um, issues with it. So, oh, and they speak to their base because they don't need to represent the opposing party because they don't need those votes, and and that's um, where the issue around your vote no longer counting. Right, and it's not. I want to be clear with people who are listening. It's not that the individual voters within those lines necessarily are more Republican or more Democrat. It's just the way they draw, they literally draw people out based on their their likelihood of voting one way or the other. Yeah, the other thing they can, and and, uh, I guess there's two things that fit with what we're talking about right now. One is the issue of splitting districts. And Krista Vries, who I know you know very well and has been working a lot uh, on... um, the mapping, and we've been having a lot of discussions about it, is the idea of splitting districts. So that one of the techniques for gerrymandering, if you will, is to take an area and split off the people that you don't want. So that um, around Charleston, for example, North Charleston, which is much more ethnically diverse, is in a different district than Charleston. 
Um, and Chris had a whole list of, when she gave her testimony, of these kinds of splitting and also precincts that are split. And that's where you get the one person on one side of the street is in one district and the one person and a person on the other side of the street is, is another one. Yeah, I think one of the examples that Chris used, and I don't have it in front of me, but I think the, one of the examples she used was a town here, near here, uh, yeah, in the southern part of the Burton. state. I think it was Burton, has 9,000 residents, three different Senate districts. Right, right. For 9,000 people. Right. Uh, because they want these voters to go into this district where it tends to lean more Democratic, and they want these voters in the, uh, you know, they're solidly Republican, so we'll keep those in this one, and then the other voters will send. They split up by demographics, right? So if you have mm -hmm. African-American voters that live on one side of town, instead of putting them in the same district, they'll split them into two districts to dilute the power of their vote. That's right. That's right. And then we also have the example um, of um, Senator Margie Bright Matthews' district, I had no idea. She's covering um, six counties mm -hmm. from um, down here um, in the lower part of Beaufort County um, on up to Charleston. And there, what they're trying to do is dilute the, although they would not admit it, but dilute the minority vote by putting as many African-Americans, um, other ethnic groups, into her district. This was not something she asked for. Um, this is not something that, she, that in a meeting with her, she said this was not something she wanted. It makes it very difficult to have such a broad range of people to, to represent. It does because they have competing interests and that gets us into the, the topic of communities of interest. That's right. If That's you right. have, if you're representing six counties as a senator in South Carolina, and some of them are rural agricultural communities, and some of mm -hmm. them are more suburban metropolitan communities along the coast, some of their needs are going to be different. And that as, as their representative, you're having to balance your own constituencies against each other. Uh, That's right. It makes it very difficult to, to truly represent the people where you live because they may live three hours away. Yeah, and in packing one district, um, which is a, a um, term used oftentimes when we talk about gerrymandering and redistricting, they're packing another district. So um, when you look at Congressional District 6, um, Jim Clyburn's district, he wins consistently with over 70% of the vote. Well, nobody needs to win consistently with 70%, over 70% of the vote. If you look at the surrounding districts around um, Clyburn's district, you can see that that created very red districts surrounding him. It was advantageous to those drawing the, the maps, let's say, to pack his district, which is, as I said earlier, a, a part of, of gerrymandering. So this Another piece would be, I want to make. oh, sorry, but this, this is a, an example of a time where there are so many people that it makes sense to have them in two districts and have more representation, whereas the example we gave in Burton, it's a very small community, and they deliberately right. split them up to dilute their power. In this 
scenario, there are so many people, they keep them together so they only have one representative. That's right. And they then cannot influence the districts around them. So what, I think what, if, if I'm following you, what you're saying is if there were a sizable number of people yeah. in a different district, they would be able to affect more effectively um, lobby their legislator and, and uh, advocate for the needs of their community yeah. that maybe are more aligned with mm -hmm. a neighboring district, but instead they're not given that opportunity because they're all lumped in together into this one large, expansive area that covers six counties. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So it's a little bit complicated, but... Yeah, um, yeah, it is. That, that kind of gives a picture. Um, I don't know whether you're familiar with some of the um, statistical analysis work that uh, Nate Silver's group did. Um, it's called 538. Yes, I'm familiar okay. with... with um, and for our listeners, you can, um, you can Google, you know, 538 written out, and you'll find it right away. At any rate, they um, developed... They took a look at the maps from the last um, redistricting, and this was a long time ago that they did it, and they're gearing up to do um, something now before redistricting starts. But um, one of the comparison maps they used was um, the, um, all the congressional maps in South Carolina, the seven districts that we have. And they put side by side the map that we currently have of the congressional districts in South Carolina next to a map that would be the ideal map if you were gerrymandering in favor of Republicans. Okay. And I'm sorry that I, I can't show the visual aid on this because you cannot tell the difference between those two maps. Right. They, I mean, they basically used a similar statistical analysis to find the most advantageous map for their party. That's right. And implemented that. Yeah. That's right. And then, and then they go on this, um, 538 group goes on to show how you could, um, gerrymander in the democratic favor, which could conceivably give three out of the seven districts to favor Democrats no more than that. So no matter what the Republicans did, they're always going to have control of the congressional seats in South Carolina. But um, it would be more they, fair representation for the right. people in and those it, communities. That's right. I think this is a good time to kind of hone in on any key ideas or any parting thoughts that you might want to convey to folks. Um, let me just give real quickly um, what the League of Women Voters is standing for in terms of redistricting. One is that legislative districts should not be distorted to either protect incumbents or political parties. Um, and we've talked about some examples of that. Um, they should not be drawn with the intention of reducing competitiveness. Uh, another thing we talked about, district lines should respect communities of interest, especially cities, towns, counties, precincts, District lines should be drawn so that racial and linguistic minorities have the opportunity to elect the representatives they're choosing, but not be packed beyond the point that diminishes the minority influence in adjacent districts. In terms of, of what people can do right now, 
Is that where we want to go? Yeah, I think that's a really good way to close. So I recently testified, as did you, at a Senate redistricting hearing that was held here in Beaufort County um, at the beginning of the month of August. And then next, we're going to have House redistricting hearings. So those are public hearings that people can, they can attend and listen in. You can attend virtually or in person, whatever you're comfortable with. And you can also testify, just whoever, anybody can, uh, any citizen of South Carolina. So uh, I would encourage people to get involved with those. Mm -hmm. Can you tell people where they can find those dates and and information about those? Can they find those on the website? Sure, and let me say that the House is doing things a little bit differently. Um, They are only doing um, the ability to testify electronically at the last of the House hearings, which will be held um, up in the Columbia region. So South Carolina House redistricting public hearing for our area, um, I guess they, they refer to it generally as uh, the low country, but in, in order to go, you have to go in person. But that's a good idea, you know, in order to, to show a, a large number of people that are, that are interested in it. Uh, we do not know yet what what they're going to put out in terms of um, the um, rules for testifying and all that sort of thing. We do know that they've already decided on the criteria and passed it. You can go to the um, State House website, and they have a special section, redistricting.schouse.gov, uh, where you can get those details. Other things I'd like to suggest, and we we did talk about this as we were talking, is if you really want to stay in touch and learn more about what's happening with redistricting in South Carolina, go to the League of Women Voters um, South Carolina website. And you can find it by simply Googling uh, League of Women Voters of South Carolina, and it'll take you right there. The other thing I would would suggest that you do is um, talk with other people about the importance of redistricting. Um, and what they can do to, to, to promote maps. You know, have, start a conversation about it if you can. Um, if you belong to an advocacy group, a church group, a civic group, or whatever, arrange to have a speaker come to talk to your group. And that's anywhere in the state of South Carolina. That's not that's just right. in the low country. If you live in the Midlands or, you know, that's the right. area, you can get a league representative near you to come and speak. And, and the league actually trained the trainers in that sense. That's right. You all have, have had extensive um, information sessions about this issue to be able to bring it back and educate mm-hmm. voters. So I think mm-hmm. that that is so valuable and such a good recommendation for people. And then uh, the last thing I'll mention is um, you can, without joining the league, you can get on the League of Women Voters Hilton Head Bluffton area mailing list. Or, and or this- wherever, go to the State League website. Um, yes. But we, I just really appreciate you taking the time today, and, and all the folks you mentioned have been doing so much great work on this. Thank you. She's Got Issues podcast was created as part of the Indie Grits Labs Fellowship Program. The 2021 fellowship project, Home Is, was made possible by Indie Grits Labs and the Columbia Film Society. 
Many thanks to everyone involved. The views expressed on She's Got Issues belong to the host and guests and do not reflect those of IndieGrits Labs, its affiliates, or employees. The music on She's Got Issues is provided by Upbeat. The track used for our opening and closing credits is called Zoo by Clarity.